This episode is brought to you by our new Patreon. For just five bucks a month, you get access to all future bonus episodes of the show. The continued misadventures of Chris and Cross. And coming soon, one-on-one style interview episodes. Get to know the guests of the show and those who bring it to you all. We also have higher tiers, which will boast exclusive art for patrons, as well as suggestions on what future episodes will be. Find links to the Patreon and all other means to support us on the website, themaidcafesupportgroup.wordpress.com. Again, that's themaidcafesupportgroup.wordpress.com. Thank you for your support. This is an episode that is almost two months in the making. We've been trying to get this out and done before the New Year's, but only now we been able to sync up scheduling and everything else. Uh, I'm super excited about this one. This week, two experts. One is an actual game developer, and one is someone who has majored in the technique and art form of it. This week, we've got our producer for the show, Marta. How's it going, Marta? Good. How are you? I'm good, thanks. And very special guests, regular contributor on The Dick Show, and game developer for Colony Siege on Steam, Johnson Brown. How's it going, man? Hey, what's up? Going pretty well. Johnson, I really have to thank you so much for you know agreeing to come on here, do a little one-on-one sort of uh, discussion about this with us. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no problem at all. Well, uh, I we like to always start off the episodes with kind of asking how the guest weeks are going. So how's it going on your end, Johnson? Uh, pretty decent. Um, got a case of diverticulitis flaring up because I ate way too many dried blueberries. So I've been dealing with that, but other than that, things are okay. Jeez. I see the weird thing is I feel like I've heard of that before, but the fact you can get it from eating too many dried blueberries, that's just astounding. It's like the people who end up wind up getting like cyanide poisoning by eating too many bitter almonds. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I usually have something stupid going on, but that's, that's this week's adventure. Gotcha. Uh, Marta, how's it going on your end? I'm dealing with the aftermath of COVID and finding out that I need surgery on my knee. Yeah, that is definitely unfortunate. I'm also dealing with the end of having COVID unfortunately, but we keep trucking on, and I'm sure everything will work out with your surgery on your knee. Uh, as far as my week going, it could be better. Unfortunately, I got stuck in the snow. We recently had a winter storm in this area, and like an idiot, I tried to get out in it because the earning potential for people who are Lyft and Uber drivers during snow, especially in a state where people don't usually get out to drive for in snow, is high. Last year when I did this, I think I made like 300 bucks in one day. Unfortunately, yeah, unfortunately this time I only got $17 in before I got stuck. And I then got, continued to be stuck at the bottom of a hill in a snowplow for close to, I believe, nine hours. Oh, man. And by the end of it, I could not feel my lower half. I was bundled up. I'm lucky that I just recently moved out of my college dorm for the semester, and I had, like, blankets and miscellaneous in there to help keep me warm, but I didn't have enough gas in my car to idle for so long to try to keep myself warm. 
I guess say this, Reddit might be a cancerous site and I would never suggest anyone using it, but I got lucky and I went on to the r slash Reddit for the city I was in and just said, hey, can someone come help me? And I luckily got someone that came out that lived right near the area. So I nice. got they off pretty l- Oh yeah, yeah. I got off pretty lucky. The guy had a uh, tow cable and was able to pull me up the hill. And as soon as I went back on the main road, I was able to drive home. I have not gone to my house since. I am, <laughs> even though the snow is melting, I don't want to deal with it. And it's like a PTSD just forming in me. Yeah, we had about a about a foot of snow a little while ago up in Washington State. So we just bought everything we needed and stayed inside for like a week. Yeah, I think that's probably the smarter idea. <laughs> I think my own greed and necessity for monetary income kind of screwed me over in the end, but enough about that. This week, I, I really want to get down to the nitty gritty. Uh, Marta is a major in game development, game design. Johnson, you have released Colony Siege. Uh, it's very much two different things. One, uh, Johnson being an actual game developer that's already released a product, has very high regards on it, uh, it's well reviewed and has made a pretty decent profit. Uh, Marta is trying to get into the scene and is setting in applications. I think the first thing I want to start with topic wise is Johnson, how is it working in game development? What, what is it when you first started? How was it affecting your schedule, your work life, all that? Well, it actually hasn't, it didn't change too much because I've been developing software for, let's see, like around 15, 16 years. So developing a game wasn't that big of a shift. And I was working from home most of the time anyway. So it was really just working on a different set of, uh, different set of objectives. It, I mean, there, there was, there's a big learning curve, you know, yeah. it's very different than what I'm used to working on. So, and Marta, you, you've obviously done tech, tech work when it comes to websites, you maintain our own website, but have you actually had any experience in developing any sort of game software or anything like that? I've worked with Autodesk, 3ds Max, Modbox, so used a lot of 2D animation, um, trying to remember the other Autodesk program. It escapes me right at the moment, and I do apologize. No, that's fine. My brain has been wiped by COVID. That's fine. Uh, Johnson, what did you guys actually end up working in game engine wise? Uh, we made our own. Um, oh, you okay? Yeah, our programmer is he's pretty good. He's been making 3D engines for a long time. He made them for a couple Microsoft games. So whenever we do a project, he builds our own engine from the ground up, which it has a lot of advantages, especially with optimization and being able to do whatever we need it to do. But of course, they're there is the issue that it's all from the ground up. So if we need something done, we have to make it ourselves. Yeah, it's definitely something that's more time-consuming. And it's, I guess, really the biggest draw is that, that you save money, at least when it comes to licensing. You don't have to worry about licensing the Unreal Engine or like Unity or something like that, correct? Yeah, that's that's not the biggest reason, though. Um, I I think part of it's just that he likes having everything 
made his way. Um, and also part of it is he doesn't like uh, all of the crap that we don't need being in the game. I understand. I very much want the slim down, only need the essentials sort of thing. Yeah, at least with the code base. I'm not trying to say that it's, you know, we optimize the art to amazing specs or anything. It's just the code is very clean and it's all done by us. Uh, Marta, do you have any question for Johnson? So do you, um, have you used Unreal Engine in the past? Uh, no, um, I've used Unity very little with a couple side projects I was working on. But typically, um, it's all our own custom engines. And I use 3ds Masks, Max, um, Photoshop, Substance Painter. And uh, for sculpting, I've used Mudbox in the past. I'm not happy with Mudbox just because it hasn't kept up with the industry standards, so we'll have to be switching on that. But uh, yeah, I've never been a fan of Mudbox. I've done a few things with textures and whatnot, and you know, modeling with it, manipulating certain sculpts and whatnot. But when it comes down to certain objects, it just some of it just doesn't work out very well. And it's. Oops, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to agree. Yeah, it's really bad with topology. Um, they they just haven't kept it up with its competition. Um, but it has such a good interface, so you want to like it. Exactly. I want to use uh, ZBrush at some point in time. I've heard good things about it. Yeah, ZBrush is, is really the go-to, but the, the interface is so wonky. Uh, it's kind of a big barrier to entry, at least for me. So let me ask, how do you guys kind of keep up with these new advances and the programs that are being made for actual development because I, I'm going to be honest, I haven't even heard of a lot of these programs. So how is it like, are they all sort of something you can learn on a very sharp learning curve or is it kind of that all programs in a general category all have the same sort of field or not field feel well, like the mud box have the same sort of, feel as like blender or something like that you kind of have a few different levels or different applications so you have like a general 3d workshop which would be like 3ds max blender uh, maya those are really the big three then you have uh, sculpting a uh, blender does sculpting too that's i've heard it's pretty good but sculpting you'd have zbrush mudbox and or or blender and that's then you usually have texturing, where Substance Painter has kind of dominated that field. So you kind of have these three different aspects. Um, and th there's not there's not really a lot of applications out there that a lot of people will seriously use. It's It's usually the main ones I mentioned. Does it have anything sort of like the people who work in 2D digital art, where there's a very dip different divide between the people who use the licensed software and any other free alternative. Is there a sort of free alternative when it comes to like these modeling programs? Yeah, that would be Blender. Um, Blender's, it can do a lot. Uh, I've, I've looked at it very lightly, but the interface is so different from what I'm used to that I haven't really been able to dive into it. So um, when I started, Blender wasn't available. 
or we might have used that from the start. But we've been using 3ds Max for so long that it's it's all ingrained in my muscle memory at this point. I feel you. Um, so I guess the big question would be, what actually made you want to get into this sort of work? Um, I didn't. Uh, I started working doing tech support. And for the software that we were working on, we tried hiring uh, external artists to get some stuff we needed made, some models and some images. And um, they just suck so bad that I just started trying to do it myself um, in between tech support calls. And then over the years, that kind of we, our company grew and I just started doing more and more stuff when contractors would let us down. And eventually I was just doing software development full time. So it's not something I even set out to do. It just kind of happened. I feel like that's the age old story for a lot of sort of independent things like this. Uh, Marta, what about you? What really made you want to get into game design and what made you basically go to college for it with in mind? Years of War. Hmm. It was my favorite game, and I love the story. I love the character development, the story behind it. I really just loved it and decided that I'd rather follow my passion for artwork and video games rather than a field that I was losing interest in, which was psychology. It's kind of simple, I, I know. It's not too in-depth, but that's where it all started, essentially. Yeah, it's as good of reason as any. Yeah, I mean, going for your passion is not, it may not always be the smart, or not smart, might not always be the safest move, but it's usually the thing that makes you happiest in the end, so it's not a bad thing to do. Johnson, would you consider your company that you guys currently work for a more indie sort of studio, or would you say that you guys are more company-oriented? Yeah, yeah, we're definitely smaller. We have fewer than 10 employees. Okay. We've we've grown a little bit in the past, but it managing so many people was such a pain in the ass that we've always scaled back. Oh, I can only imagine. So, we think that's that's where we're going to stay. Uh, have you ever worked for a larger company uh, when it comes to sort of development or even just tech in general? Kind of. So, I I don't know if you remember my story from the Dick show, but after I got out of that weird camp um i just turned 17 and about a week after i got a job at a sandwich place i worked there for a year and a half and then i worked at fry's electronics for another year and a half so that brings me to about 20 and since then i've been working for the company i'm working for now so i just kind of got sucked into it at a really early age see that almost kind of recently i watched a video on uh Oh man, I I can't Gateway Computer. That's it. And learning that the guy that made Gateway Computers was a college dropout, even though you seem whenever you hear about all the tech billionaires, it's always like, oh, was going to blank Ivy League, dropped out, founded blank computer. But when it came to Gateway, the guy took a job in a computer repair shop for about a year until he learned the whole scene and the business for computer software sales and everything. So that's always interesting to know that people that go on to do these things like you have, they always have these jumping point where they work at a place for a small period of time before it jumps into something and just develops. 
recently Marta had a thing where she was applying to work for a more indie de- studio. And unfortunately, that didn't really work out. But what would you say when it comes to deciding if you want to work for a larger studio or try to work for an indie studio? Well, the smaller the better, I would say, in terms of quality of life. Um, The larger studios I don't have personal experience with, but our programmer um, was one of the bigger players in, in that industry. And he had some good times in it, but there was... There was a time around when the original, I forget what year it was, but around when the original Xbox came out, things started shifting seemingly all over in the industry, and it became not a very fun place. Um, I think that things just became too serious, too competitive, and it just sucked. So that that's why he founded his own company after that. So yeah, I would say if you had a choice, the India would probably be be better. I guess one of the biggest reasons for that would be something that we've noticed uh, happens to companies. Um, I remember, do you know Chris Taylor, the guy who he did, he set up Caves Dog Studios, um, Total Annihilation? Uh, he's yeah, I, I believe I've heard of him. Yeah, I remember him. I remember my our programmer, my boss, telling me about a talk he had with them a long time ago, where he noticed that companies would fall into this trap where they would come out with a hit game and they would spend a lot of money on it and it would do really well and then they would make another hit game um, but they kept expanding and it got to the point where they were in a trap where if they failed to have a hit their burn rate was so high that they would just be utterly screwed and I remember him saying that Chris Taylor had said that he would never make that mistake and then a few years later he did it anyway so it seems really hard for larger companies not to get into that cycle. Another point I would make is that large companies can't really afford to innovate. There's there's a reason that we see the the most innovative and fresh games coming from indie developers because they are a, they're smaller and more nimble and able to experiment with different types of gameplay, whereas the larger developers really can't. They have to just come out with another flavor of tried and true. Um, because they just can't risk a, a flop at that level. Well, it, actually, this is a very classic example of the opposite of the expand or die mindset when it comes to business. Uh, I'm a business major, so this sort of thing is bread and butter for me. But it, especially when you look at something like the, te- uh, the dot-com bubble, where you had companies that were growing far too big without any real idea of how they're going to maintain the sort of uh, workflow that they're having and in- maintain profitability. And you would think that people would have learned from the 2000 bubble popping that if you expand too far and outgrow your capabilities, you're going to flop and end up bankrupt. But I guess, as you've said, it just continued to be prevalent in the industry. It's easy to get swept up in, I think. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely like a riding high sort of thing. You feel like you've, like you said, you release a hit, you feel like, okay, we need to expand, we're doing good, let's keep the ball running. Uh, that's also a mentality uh, that they talk about in business, uh, where it, it can lead you, unfortunately, way down quickly. Um, Marta, how, I know you've obviously still been on the job search, but are you focusing more on 
company applications or have you tried to find more indie studio to work with? What What's your sort of game plan? Both. I've applied to both. It just depends on how much experience they want. Um, a lot of them require you to have five plus years of experience having published a game. And basically it's just very hard to get your foot into the door. And it's kind of frustrating in a way because there's a lot of uh, students that are coming out of, you know, their major, especially in video game art and design, who want a chance in the industry. But because of a lot of their requirements, you'll be lucky to get anything. You know, it's luck of the draw at that point in time. There's plenty of people through LinkedIn that I have talked to who have said, I doubt there is any true entry-level job in the video game market. Yeah. Well, and you also have to remember, they've been burned so many times by either students or even seasoned professionals that just did a terrible job. I, I know that's been our case. It's It's a running joke that when we think about hiring a contractor or like a temporary worker for something that we're just going to be kicking ourselves for it later. But I guess, um, I guess my advice would be to have, have you, have you guys seen shower with your dad simulator on steam? Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. To a different degree, genital jousting. Um, there's, there's a lot of games that take very little effort, but they have such a ridiculous premise that they can go viral pretty easily. And that's what I would recommend for for anybody looking to get into the industry is to find a really niche, really low effort game that has a premise that's funny enough to stand on its own and publish it. And then when that way on your resume, you can show that you know you've created a game and it has positive reviews on Steam. Yeah, I feel like that's a decent idea. I mean, usually whenever you're applying to like larger companies, they always want to see that you have past experience when it comes to some type of entrepreneurial spirit. I, I know a friend of mine that applied to work at, I, I don't think I can mention what company it is, but he had mentioned that he had been owning and producing a sort of online business for the past two years or so. And that actually helped him land the job. So I can see that having even something small, but as long as it's been received positively can help majorly. Um, and Marta here, actually her expertise is more in the horror genre and the horror genre always is going to be big when it comes to video games. Uh, so developing something in the horror genre and making it stand out a bit might be a bit tough, but I feel like with her expertise and knowledge of what makes a horror game good versus something like mm -hmm. uh, Agony was a big game that came out a while back and just flopped terribly despite uh, how started. hyped up it was. <laughs> and Marta has, yeah, and Marta has her own misgivings about Agony. But so your advice to Marta would be really take something that you're passionate about, like horror and the macabre sort of, design and make your own sort of small niche game and release it? Well, to start with, I actually think that uh, comedy 
is is kind of a shortcut even if that isn't your thing that isn't what you want to do long term i th- i think that comedy something ridiculous something small is the path of least resistance to getting something published that actually gets good reviews and people share and that's why i bring up shower with your dad simulator i mean that's probably the lowest effort game i've ever seen and it has thousands of reviews and it it just kind of went viral not because people are really playing it and enjoying it but just because it's so funny that somebody would even think to make a game like that and then i think you can springboard that to a lot of different opportunities but um horror is it's definitely one of my favorite genres too um it's actually the genre i wanted to uh use for uh, if we were going to do uh, another game you don't say uh yeah uh see this is totally new to me um so uh, well weirdly enough you kind of broke into the final topic i wanted to go to which is actually do you have any advice for like game development majors but that kind of sums it up i mean marta do you have anything else you like to discuss with johnson while we have him I just appreciate the advice, considering this is something I've been trying to get into for the longest time, um, especially when it came comes down to character development. I enjoy 2D the most. I mm-hmm. enjoy character concepts. Um, I also have a, my master's degree in creative writing, professional writing, and that's another thing I like. I like storyboards. I like writing. I enjoy it. Um, horror has always been my thing. Youngest memory that I have is being four years old and seeing Tales from the Crypt. It was all history from there. And so that's pretty much I'm going to try my best and uh, continue to apply to wherever, you know, try to make my own thing. But I, that's why I really appreciate your advice because there's not many people I can really talk to about this. Yeah, and to add to that, um, I think another reason that it's so important to get some sort of project published is to show that uh, you can follow through with something technical, something that takes a little while to build. Because uh, you wouldn't believe how many people are all fired up at first, but then they just fizzle out so quickly. And even if they're not able to articulate it, I think a lot of employers kind of have that in the back of their mind. And that's one of the reasons that they look for the experience. But I think that, I think it actually means more to prove that you can publish something than it does to, you know, have some experience with the company. Do they appreciate samples of work? Because I've done a few different projects using Unreal Engine. Uh, I also have, models that i've made that i've actually been quite proud of do many look at those or are they just at this point they're just like yeah we we just want experience um i mean i would look at the models i i would i would def i mean those are definitely important but i just don't think anything can really top sending somebody a steam link or whatever publishing platform you're using because ultimately the employer is thinking about their game on steam or their game on whatever app database it is and so if you can show them hey i'm i'm there i've made it there then that's that's something that really kind of sets you apart i 
I can definitely see, like, it's a very different thing between having, like, a nice model in your portfolio and, yeah, having the theme link to send. Like, here's a nice model I spent time on. I think it looks very good. That's, that's nice. I'm glad you know how to make a model versus here's a game I developed. It's something short, but I've gotten positive feedback on it. And it shows that I have a finished product. Yeah. And if you're at an indie company that's just getting started, it also shows them that you know how to navigate Steam and go through their publishing guidelines and respond to community members. And that's all stuff that they're really going to value if they don't have any experience in it. Uh, it, it can be really hard to find somebody. to. I, I'd say that's the hardest part of all of this, is to find somebody that fills in those missing pieces. Like, it doesn't sound like you do any programming. Am I correct in that? Not really, no. Um, I need to brush up more on 3D design because, you know, it's always good to brush up on that because during the time when I was going through the master's degree program, I had to work on a fifty to 60,000 word thesis. So kind of went into the background for a while. So definitely got to brush up on it a bit, but pr- programming, not so much. Yeah. Yeah. See, I, I don't do any programming at all. I mean, website scripting is the extent of it. So there's been a couple of times in the past where I've tried to do a side project, just you know, partly just for fun, partly to for the chance of making some extra money. And the people that I would partner with didn't really pan out. So I'd say if you if you know somebody that can partner with you to fill in those pieces on a project, um, that's that's going to be huge. Now, hopefully, you know, I can find that person. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you know, there's, there's certainly the possibility that a small joke game or, or just a small serious game would, would make money if it goes viral and you're selling it for 99 cents, um, that, that can actually net some revenue. So, you know, offer them 50%, just split down the middle of all proceeds and see if you can find somebody that'll actually stick with you. Well, I mean, yeah, you look at something like Flappy Bird that was on the mobile. I mean, that guy went on to make enough money and have enough clout that he decided, okay, I no longer want either of these things. Yeah. It was so disruptive in his own life that he dropped out. Despite the fact he's making thousands every day just from a stupid little app. Yeah. Yeah. And that, I mean, there's so many companies that try emulating not just Flappy Bird literally, but Flappy Bird spirit of a small, you know, low effort game that goes viral. And that I don't think is necessarily the right way to go because you're in a sea of probably millions of games at this point. But if you make something that stands out by being funny and ridiculous, I think that's how you get your foot in the door. I think that's the best way, or the easiest way to get your foot in the door, I should say. I can agree with that. It's definitely one thing to try to, and companies try it all the time, to try to capture the lightning in a bottle that is a indie hit that was something more as a joke. And companies do it all the time. They try to market off of something that was already popular, but it really just comes off as skeezy and like you're trying to make a imitation of something. It, that's why whenever you have... Yeah, it's got to yeah, be original. Yeah. And it almost, whenever you came to like the 
the simulator genre. And I feel like, yeah, shower with your dad simulator, because at the time when that came out, I feel like it was the joke because obviously you have every other type of simulator already. Uh, but simulator games continue to come out and people still play them. I think like uh, Power Washer Simulator came out not too long ago and it's pretty well received. People play it, streamers do it. But it's a weird thing because it's a novelty, but people continue to buy it, play it. And you almost have to wonder, is it, this is Power Washer Simulator because it's not being made like the person who made Shower With Your Dad Simulator. It's not being made as like a joke. So, what is the mindset behind this? Because the person oh, autism. <laughs> <laughs> I I really think it is. Um, some people have, I guess, would be slightly on the spectrum, and it's really cathartic to wash away uh, debris and see something clean underneath. I I think it is profoundly relaxing for them. <laughs> see. That might be true. Autism explains uh, Power Washer Simulator. Uh, I guess that would explain the entirety of Germany then and their obsession with bus, train, and all these other simulators. <laughs> Germany oh, is yeah. an extremely autistic country, I suppose. Yeah, you'd have to see uh, how they do a Sonic. How interested <laughs> they are in Sonic over there. See, this is this is the secret thing. Hitler wasn't actually like an evil man. He was just extremely autistic and really <laughs> into RTS games. He just thought the war was a giant RTS. I mean, I, I have taken Poland. Now they will, you know, I can now take their resources and I will plan out until I've got the German Reich and it will all be fine. Yeah, they didn't like his his Sonic the Hedgehog fan art. <laughs> nope. And, and in fact, because they didn't like his Sonic the Hedgehog fan art, that's what inspired him to go on the campaign. Uh, as an example of what I'm talking about, I had a project that... I wanted to be pretty hands-off, so I put some money into it, and I tried to connect with a programmer and somebody else to do art. Um, something to illustrate this idea, and are, you guys remember Mike Tyson's Punch-Out for the NES, right? Yep, it's probably one of the NES games you hear the most talked about. So I had the idea to make a game called Tyke Mison's Crotch-Out. And the idea is that it's it's like Mike Tyson's Punch-Out, you know, with the same kind of pixel graphics, but you're a kid basically punching ball sacks. Um, and you, you fight your way through, like, the school bullies and eventually, like, get the principal and just something that's that's so retarded that people would would share it. See, I can already see this game easily going viral, especially when you mix it in. And if you have some stupid reference to King of the Hill with the, that not that's my purse sort of thing you mix it <laughs> yeah. you you eventually got people sharing this around like haha funny meme kicking balls it, it's perfect for the internet well and uh you can rope in other uh properties so for example we had uh dick masterson i think was one of the enemies we had mundane matt just comically <laughs> fat and yeah um Did you that add the was boulders the, though yeah oh good <laughs> yeah. As long as the boulders are included, I'm very happy. <laughs> See, now you'd all all you'd have to do is add in Ralph, and you, you can even just put his disfigured, beaten up face as the uh, actual face for the person. <laughs> you already got a beat up. And well, then you get gunk blocked. Yeah. So an example of of this strategy working is, um, cut, well, I guess this kind of is an example of both aspects of this. Uh, you know, cuckold simulator. So that oh yeah yeah that guy put ridiculous amount of work into such a simple joke that 
he he's got probably one of the best souls like game that's not in a souls like game. <laughs> yeah, and remember when um what was his name? Uh Jack the the alpha male guy with the weird beard. Oh yeah, yeah, ja- uh not Jack Dorsey. I know you're talking about though. Jack, uh, Jack Goldman or something. Yeah, yeah, Jack the uh I'm happy my girlfriend's cucking me because I can think yeah. him and write. Yeah. See, he jumped you know, on that and he put him in the game and I think that got him a huge amount of traffic that he wouldn't have otherwise got for a very little effort. Yeah, it it just when it comes to developing, especially these sort of joke titles, you just need to know when to capitalize on something. You you can't do it too late. Uh, like the people who got in on NFT just as the market was starting to cool off. You have to know when you can jump on it and how you can implement it in a funny way. Yeah, yeah, and I think I think as a rule of thumb, the more ridiculous, the better. Because you, there's two aspects to, to this. One is that I've noticed that when you conceptualize a really ridiculous or funny product it always seems more crass and more over the top in your head it actually does when you have it in the store so you kind of want to anticipate that and make it really crazy um everything you make should always try to be the adventures of scrody mcbooker ball you always want to leave them vomiting and be happy that they are yeah, yeah, yeah. Just um, just go go over the top. Um, also, I've noticed that people are hypersensitive about anything that could be deemed offensive, which uh, it kind of creates a comedy vacuum. I think. Well, see, this reminds me actually because forever ago, uh, I don't even remember when, but I I used to watch the old like stream archives for Ralph and everything. And I remember at one point Ralph was talking about, we should have like plantation simulator. (laughs) Yeah. And I still think if Ralph had released that, it probably wouldn't have been a funny thing. He would, it would have gotten banned everywhere. It would have been like, but because it would have gotten banned, it would have been the Streisand effect of this game is banned. People hate this game. The game is getting written about in the Wall Street Journal or something like that. Yeah. Let's play this game. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then you even have the people who want to support it just to give the middle finger to all the people wailing about it. But you could also do well, something um, a little bit different. Like you could have it be a plantation simulator, but instead of black people you could maybe switch the roles maybe it's white people out in the plantations and you make that into a whole joke yeah um <laughs> railroad simulator except the chinese are not the ones that are <laughs> yeah uh well johnson we're again toward the end of the episode uh before we do our lack goodbye can i just ask uh what do you guys have in store next as far as like games you think about developing? Do you guys have an idea in the works? Well, my, I think the biggest idea I have is it's a little bit difficult to describe, but it's the horror game I was talking about. And I don't know if I'll ever get to it. I just, I hope that a game like this gets made at some point. And the idea is that it's kind of a mix between the mist or the fog i forget what it was called but that that movie book by stephen king where there was that dense fog that rolled in and all these monsters lurked in it yeah um kind of a cross between that and mech warrior so 
a story being that you're on a planet somewhere, this weird fog rolls in with all these creatures in it, and you're basically trapped in this prototype mech, and that's why you're able to still breathe while everybody else dies out. And the only way you can see is through different sensors, like thermal sensors, infrared, thermal. Um, And the game is a very horror survival game where you're trying to navigate through this planet to get off of it. And the only way you can see your surroundings is through your various sensors. And, you know, when creatures attack you, like you'd actually see the cockpit with the fog swirling around, you'd see like a, like a claw try to pierce the cockpit or something. Uh, I think that would be a really fun game and also extremely intense. Yeah. I I mean, just from the premise alone, it's very interesting. It it definitely reminds me of alien isolation, obviously with constantly having to look at different devices to actually see where the threat is coming from. Mm -hmm. But it also reminds me of Metro where you have just so many of these different devices that you have to constantly make use of. Uh, and whenever you have some sort of game where you constantly have to make use of these different items and you have to keep them calibrated, you have to make sure to remember to use them, it definitely is going to fall into that same sort of category of autism for people where they're going to like it because they have to constantly keep track of things. But it's also going to draw in the horror fans that are like, I like this idea. I want to know what is out there and I want to actually be freaked out. Yeah, and I think I... I think that it has a big advantage in that it could be accomplished, the whole game could be accomplished by a small studio because due to the dense fog, you don't actually have to have really detailed outdoor environments that are fully textured um, because you'd only be seeing them through different sensors. So you could still have a giant outdoor area, but you wouldn't need to texture it. You wouldn't need to add a lot of micro detail. You could you could tell a bigger story than what you're actually building, I guess you could say. Yeah. Uh, Marta, how do you feel about it? It sounds something perfectly up your alley. It's also good to see he's interested in my state, Stephen King land. <laughs> um, I think it would work very well. I've always liked the idea of, you know, I don't know how to explain it. I've just always liked the idea of that. your character being trapped in a kind of setting that is almost smothering. Yeah. The desperation. Yep. The the type of desperation that uh, causes the player to have a sense of unease and anxiety towards what they are playing. Mm -hmm. I've always enjoyed Outlast because Every time I play it, I feel a rush of adrenaline. I could play it ten times, and I'd still jump at certain scenes. Because it's just that intense, especially the second game. Because you have these people who are chasing you down. You have one woman named Marta who just, she just wants you dead. You're a sinner, she wants you dead. And that's it. She will chase you right down until you are able to squirm your way away from her. And it feels intense because you know what will happen. Uh, a lot of times she'll either stab you in the chest or in the dick. So <laughs> you want to try to avoid that bitch. And that's what I enjoy out of a game, especially like Dead Space as well. 
because you're trapped in a in an area where it's almost like alien in a way. I just I don't know how to explain my feelings. Sometimes I do apologize. It's just, just I could ramble on about yeah, it's kind of like sci-fi. Like you have overwhelming odds against you. Yep. Yeah, I think I think two things I've noticed that are most important with horror is kind of an an undulation of your senses in I guess a better way to explain it would be the player needs to be put in a state of extreme paranoia and intensity, but also needs to be put into there needs to be a relief valve for that. Um I think a good example of that is like the original Resident Evil games where you would have the really intense uh, portions of the game and then you get to a save room and suddenly there's calming music and you know that nothing can happen there. Uh, so I, th- I think that's really key. And I, I don't think a lot of horror people really recognize the importance of that. Especially with the older Resident Evil game, because yeah, you always feel like you're perfectly safe in a save room because you have the calming music, you have the ability to finally access your items. And that was really well played with because I, I forget which of the games, but there is eventually a point where you've been psychologically conditioned to always feel safe in these rooms. And then you go into a save room, you attempt to save, and it blows up in your face. And turns out not all the save rooms are actually safe. Yeah. Which it definitely usurping the expectation and teaching you to not always assume that just because up till now something has been safe and a place you can't be harmed doesn't mean that all of them are going to be real. It's just like a Dark Souls mimic. A chef usually means a good thing, but then you get the first chef that kills you and it's like, okay, now I can't trust (laughs) any of these ever again. Yeah, and also not keeping the player in a state of constant anxiety. Because if you keep them in anxiety too much, I think it kind of cancels out. Um, they they need a little bit of a relief valve, and that. Well, it's the it's the roller coaster effect. You need the lows along yeah. with the highs, or else if it's a constant highs. Yeah, exactly. But don't down. don't do it with comedy. Some games try to do that, and it it never really. I prefer the Resident Evil approach where they just use calm instead of comedy to try to provide that relief. What are you talking about? The first Resident <laughs> Evil is a laugh riot. Uh, you were almost a Jill sandwich. Are you kidding me? That a game is a laugh riot. Another um, important thing with horror, I think, is that, at least for me, that the player, for perfect horror, in my opinion, the player is not fully powerless. Like, I think... Like for Alien Isolation, although being a good game, there were t- after you get killed by the alien once or twice and you realize you're completely powerless against it, it, it takes something away from the experience for me. So yeah, I, I prefer, yeah, I prefer games like like Dead Space where you're never you're never really powerless, but um, there's still overwhelming odds against you. Well, I think that about wraps it up. Uh, Again, I'd like to thank Johnson Brown for coming on, being a guest for the episode. Been a great guy. Uh, maybe in the future, if we ever do another one, we can have him back on. Marta, what are your final words for Johnson and our audience at home? Just really grateful that I was able to talk to you. And thank you very much for your advice. And I hope others 
take into consideration the advice you provided me with as well. Yeah, no problem. It's been great. Great being on here. See, Marta, this is where you're supposed to mention that, hey, if you ever start development on that horror game, maybe keep me in mind for your team. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. I was just going <laughs> to slide into his DMs. Yeah. Uh, and Johnson, do you have any parting words for our people at home? Um, No, I would just say to the two of you, just let me know if you ever have anything to talk about. I, I don't mind talking whenever. Oh, hey. Perfect. I, I'd love to add someone uh, normal that knows how to do a podcast and is a regular guest. So I'll definitely keep you in mind for future episodes. And as always, my final words are welcome to the true man's world of Marta had good advice. Never trust a crazy bitch named Marta. She will stab you in the dick. This is why Marta does not know where I live, how I sleep or how many knives I keep around me at any one time. L. I can't give away all my secrets. All right, everybody. Goodbye. Just like that. The gun becomes the violent one. 500 pounds, 5 foot 1. Nigga, your ass is gonna be the Bible, son. When the gun becomes the violent one, all these bitches like Riley run. So watch out, cause you might be one second away from being finally done. You shake like a leaf, man. I'm so savage with the beef. But how am I gonna eat beef sandwich with neurological damage in your teeth? Really shouldn't be so embarrassed. I've known to get my ass beat by lethal salad. But right leaf salad ain't what you eat. <laughs> Exercise to me is like fucking kryptonite. But if I don't see blood on your lip tonight, Negro, you're gonna end up a kryptonite. You choke, 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 choke. Your whole neighborhood's gonna watch your bitch ass choke, 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 choke. I can find my dick that's thick. That's shit in your throat. And now my girl is messaging me. Can you bring back my CP? Like, roll up on this fool's trip tonight. This bitch wants to start wrestling me. We're about to make a big mess in the streets. It means nothing to me. Just another under street.